Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome back to Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy. This is episode 24, The Easter Sunday Lie. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for listening. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. I accept ownership of all thoughts and opinions in this podcast. Hi, Jeff. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thanks, Graham. We're back again. Yes, we are. Jeff, before we get into the podcast, I have some feedback to share. I mentioned in the last episode, I believe the Queensland Police had more evidence against Graham Stafford than they ever had against Max Seeker. I've been reflecting on that comment and would like to go further. I see a similar pattern of misconduct by both the Queensland Police Service and the prosecutor in both the Holland murder investigation and the Singh murder investigation. There are three investigations here, 20 years apart. The original Holland investigation in 1991, the Singh investigation, which started in 2003, and the police review of the Holland investigation, which started in 2010. What are the similarities I see? The Queensland Police and the DPP burying witnesses and or refusing to call witnesses at trial who were favourable to the defence, as well as burying evidence that was favourable to the defence. Here is one example. You talked about the failure to capture the CCTV footage at Stafford City Shopping Centre in the last episode. In the Holland investigation, Graham Stafford, the only suspect from day one, sound familiar? told investigators that he put his car through the car wash on the Monday, the day Leanne Holland went missing. And at that point in time, the Crown claimed he had the body of Leanne Holland in the boot of the car. It was noted police went to the car wash and took possession of the CCTV footage. The contents of that CCTV were never disclosed and it was not produced at trial. I suggest that if it shows something favourable to the Crown, for instance, opening the boot and there is a large bundle like a body, it would have been Exhibit 1. Now, it may have been that Graham Stafford did not open the boot at all, or he was open the boot and there was no large bundle there. There may have been nothing to see in the video, or it may have been favourable to the defence. Whatever the situation... 
the contents are still not known. How would it be possible that the same pattern of misconduct is visible in all three investigations? Easy. There may have been police involved in the Holland investigation who were also involved in the Singh investigation. After all, they are less than 10 years apart. Please do talk to each other. I am aware that a senior supervisor in the Singh investigation was involved in the police review of the Holland investigation. And in that review investigation, I saw repeated brazen manipulation of the evidence to give an outcome favourable to the Queensland Police. The other comment I would like to make is that you have referenced a fair trial on a number of occasions. I would go further and say not only did Max Seeker not receive a fair trial, the evidence as it currently stands does not support his conviction. I also believe there would be many, many people who would not care if Max Seeker did not receive a fair trial, provided the evidence showed that he committed the murders. The problem, of course, is we are not backed by a national newspaper which puts a podcast story on the front page of their next day's paper. I wish we were. We are involved in two murder investigations where the media want absolutely nothing to do with the stories. In the case of the Holland murder, the police reviewed themselves and found they had got it right the first time round. In the Singh murders, virtually every media in the country had Seeker convicted before the trial. Someone within the Queensland police was leaking stories furiously and continually. Jeff, I note today we are going to discuss the fact that Max Seeker's presence at the Singh house at 20 Grass Street Close on Easter Sunday night was indispensable to his guilt. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. Now that's right, Graham. The Crown had to prove his guilt beyond reasonable doubt. And to do that, they had to prove again beyond a reasonable doubt. Max Seeker was at the Singh House on Easter Sunday night when the Crown alleged the murders were committed. If they couldn't do that, that was an end to the matter. Now, let's see what the trial judge had to say about that. Uh, He dealt with it in his summing up to the jury at page 23, for those that are interested. And these were his instructions to the jury in relation to that matter. These are his words, but not his voice. In his interviews with the police, the accused maintained that he was at his Trouts Road home on the night of Easter Sunday, Monday, when on the prosecution case, the Singh children were killed. This version forms part of the evidence for your consideration. It is not for the accused to show that his account is true. Instead, before you may convict, the prosecution must satisfy you beyond a reasonable doubt of his guilt. As the accused's presence at the crime scene is obviously indispensable to his guilt, it is for the prosecution to establish beyond reasonable doubt that the accused was at 20 grass tree close when the Singh children were killed. You might recall in the last episode, I indicated that being able to assert to the jury that Max Seeker deliberately lied about the time he arrived at grass tree close on the Tuesday was very important to the Crown because, in my opinion, that bolstered the weak evidence 
relating to Max Seeker being at Grass Tree Close on Easter Sunday night. The prosecutor made the following statement to the jury. These are his words, but not his voice. There could be no reason for telling such a deliberate lie, other than the realisation that, in a truthful account, he could not innocently account for the time he spent in the house before ringing triple zero. For the prosecutor to have made that submission, without calling evidence that would have disclosed to both the court and the jury that the reasons why the police did not contain CCTV footage that it would have conclusively shown Max Seeker dropping his sister at Stafford City at 2pm, not putting into evidence the statement made by Melena P that they picked up Artie Anna and took her to Stafford Road and failing to disclose to the court and the jury the date on the phone was the 28th, not the 29th, and the crime scene log did not support the evidence of the Socko or the owner of the phone as to any relevant time that they say the photograph of the phone was taken. All that was unfair and unjust, Graham, in my view. Instead, he tells the jury that they should not believe Anna McGovern, telling the jury that they might conclude that she was never in the car, that she was lying to the court. I also have grave concerns about that because that also was unjust and unfair in the light of not calling all relevant witnesses. As the custodian of the justice system in Queensland, I would have thought the Attorney-General should have similar concerns. Any fair-minded Attorney-General would have referred to the case to the Court of Appeal for review on those facts alone. Yes. A very concerning situation, Jeff. Let's then examine the evidence produced by the Crown as to what they say occurred on that Easter Sunday night. However, more importantly, we will also examine the exculpatory evidence that was not produced by the prosecutor, challenging his assertion that Max Seeker deliberately lied about being at home all Easter Sunday night. Right. The police prosecutor asserted to the jury that following a one-second ring by Neilmer at 11.10pm on that Easter Sunday night, Max Seeker then went to Grass Tree Close where he killed the Singh children. There is evidence that Neilmer was ill that night and it is undisputed that there was a 34-second phone call from the Seeker phone to Neilma's phone following on that one-second call. Max Seeker maintains that as a result he did not go to Grass Tree Close. What seems to have been glossed over to some extent, and what I say is also extremely important, is there was simply no direct evidence that he did go to Grass Tree Close. There was no evidence of his leaving his house. There was no evidence of his arriving at Grass Tree Close. There was no evidence of his returning home from Grass Tree Close. Nothing. There was no CCT evidence of any seeker vehicle travelling to and from Grass Tree Close. There is no evidence from anybody in the vicinity of Grass Tree Close hearing anything unusual 
or any disturbance on Easter Sunday night. There was evidence, as you've outlined previously, Graham, from people relating to the Monday night. But, of course, Max Seeker had an alibi for Monday and Monday night. More than that, Jeff, I felt it was very significant there was no evidence, real evidence, blood, bleach, DNA, on Max Seeker or in his car, his house. It just completely demolished Lockhart's theory of exchange of trace evidence. Uh, that's right, Graham. And I'm still agitating to be provided with the entire case file for DNA testing in the Seeker case. Because Max Eker, as I've said before, vigorously maintains he has no concern about retesting because he didn't kill the Singh siblings. Anyway, I'll deal with that in more detail when we get to DNA in a later episode. What is, as you have said, undisputed is in addition to what I said a short time ago, there was no blood found on Max Seeker, his clothes, his shoes, in any of the Seeker vehicles or in drains of the Singh household where it might have been found had Max Seeker attempted to wash away evidence. Nothing. So what evidence is said to exist to prove Max Seeker went to Grass Tree Close on Sunday night? The earlier text message from Neilma where she states she's not feeling well and the one ring at 11.10pm. You just ignore the obvious inference to be drawn from the 34-second return telephone call. You refuse to call the exculpatory evidence available from others that supported Max Seeker's claim that he did not go to the Singh House on Easter Sunday night. And just to remind the listener, there is evidence that Max Seeker was home on the Sunday night, particularly from Lisa L. Well, Graham, as you've already outlined in a previous episode, Lisa L. had important exculpatory evidence that was never heard by the jury. At the risk of repeating myself, let me once again remind your listeners that the prosecutor alleged that Max Seeker had deliberately lied about being at home all Easter Sunday night and that that lie was evidence of his guilt. In April of 2003, Lisa L. and her then-partner Paul A. resided at a 113 Trouts Road right next door to the Seeker residence. Yes, the house previously owned by the Singh family, actually. That's right. Now, the Seeker house is on a corner. That the house in Trouts Road that immediately abuts the Seeker house was the house where Lisa L. and her partner lived. So in perusing the job logs, I found a job log number 1344. That job log instructed an officer to... Question Lisa L. as to her knowledge of Seeker and or Sings. Now that job log, Graham, was issued on the 29th of April 2004. That date, in my view, is very important. Because what happened is a team of police was sent to Trout's Road in the vicinity of the Seeker House to do a door knock of neighbours to see what neighbours might have recalled about what happened on Easter Sunday night in 2003. Now, listeners might scratch their heads and wonder why police did not do a door knock of neighbours 
in the vicinity of the Sika house for 12 months. I've always wondered the reason for that lengthy delay. Well, it intrigued me. Why the extraordinary delay? They had Seeker as the suspect virtually from day one, and one would have thought that any competent investigator would have organised for detectives to go to Trout's Road, door knock the neighbours back in April of 2003 to see whether or not they'd seen any unusual happenings or whether they'd seen Max Seeker's cars departing, whether there'd been observations of Max Seeker made on Easter Sunday night. Not to do that for 12 months is, to say the least, extraordinary. One might speculate, I suppose, maybe police were concerned if they did the door knock in April of 2003, people might have come forward with observations that established Max Seeker was indeed home all of that night and Easter Monday morning. Mm. They might have been concerned that those statements would support what Max Seeker had told police. That was that he was home all that night. Surprise, surprise. They do the door knock and Lisa L does have a recollection when she was spoken to in April of 2004 and as she set out in her affidavit, a sworn affidavit, she observed Max Seeker's vehicle parked in the same place in front of her house all that Easter weekend. And more importantly, she observed the vehicle at about 1am on Easter Monday morning and says it was still there at about 7am that morning. She swears that she spoke to police when they knocked on her door and subsequent to that and provided information. And just to remind the listener, Lisa L stated she was up at 1am because she was packing because they were going away camping. That's right. They were going to the Carnarvon Gorge and as I'll mention later, that was confirmed to me by her partner Paul A. Anyway, what did police do? They actively decided not to obtain a statement from her because it did not suit their narrative. She never got to see the witness box at trial. The dotation made on job log 1344 is as follows. No information has come to light before or since this job log was created to suggest that Lisa L is pertinent to the prosecution brief or can assist with this investigation. This job log can be filed at this time. The major incident room coordinator concurs with this decision. Graham, the wording of that notation is important in my view. It does not say that Lisa L did not provide information, just that the information, and I quote, is not pertinent to the prosecution brief, close quote. You might think that the reference to prosecution brief implies that the information might have been pertinent, just not to the police narrative. That is, it was exculpatory evidence favouring Max Seeker. So what do you do? You ignore the direction to speak to Lisa L and put the job log away. Now, since obtaining the affidavit from Lisa L, we know now that what she observed on Easter Sunday night and subsequently told police, indeed did favour Max Seeker. Now, for the record, Lisa Rell and her then partner separated a very considerable time ago. 
Anyway, I was able to make contact with Paul A. I simply provided him with a copy of Lisa L's affidavit and asked him to make any comment that he might see fit. He confirmed that he believed her observations of that Sunday night were correct. And then, of course, there is page 47 from the doorknock records. I recall you telling me, Jeff, that you were having difficulties getting that particular page. Did you end up obtaining it? <laughs> no, Graham. Mysteriously, it's never been produced. Just to remind listeners, because it may have been covered in your previous podcast, Alison Sandy made a right to information request for documents relating to that job log 1344. That produced nothing of relevance. I had also located item 1563 in the running sheets that related to the doorknob. Alison Sandy made a similar request for documents relevant to that item. We then received redacted documents recording door knock information received by police when they conducted that door knock in April 2004. In going through those redacted sheets, I came across an unusual occurrence. There was no actual page 47, but peeking out of the back of page 46, there was a page that appeared to be probably page 47. It was largely obscured. There was only the corner showing. However, the word parked was clearly visible on that small part of page 47 that was not obscured. I then asked Alison Sandy whether she would be able to obtain a copy of page 47. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. She made that request and the answer came back from a police inspector advising, quote, they acknowledge it looks like there should be another page, but they cannot locate it, close quote. Page 47 has never been provided. Conspicuously, the doorknot records that I've been provided with do not contain a record of a conversation with Lisa L. Curious, to say the least. Graham, to me it's inconceivable police conducting the door knock would not have spoken to the very person living right next door to the seeker residence. Inconceivable describes it accurately, I think. Lisa L has sworn in an affidavit that she did speak to an officer and the job log records that police made a decision not to take a statement from her. Alison Sandy also applied for an in internal review in relation to job log 1344 and the following written response was received advice from the state crime command that the named individual was not spoken to in regards to that investigation log or related investigations and the log entry was finalized that's further confirmation police actively avoided taking a statement from lisa Earl. 
one might conclude that a conversation with the police officer on the door knock might be recorded on page 47. That page has mysteriously disappeared. Maybe not, but then where is the page that does record police speaking with Lisa L on the door knock in 2004? I've never seen it. I'd be very happy for police or the Crown to produce it, and I'd be very happy to resile from my assertions if that proves otherwise. To me, that's very disturbing, Jeff, but what are the legal implications of that? In my view, the Crown was obliged to call Lisa Earl to give evidence of her observations relating to the secret vehicles at trial, Graham. She swears she was spoken to on the door knock, and also subsequently spoke to police, but no statement was taken, apparently, according to the notation, because it was not pertinent to the police brief. Police were obviously aware that Lisa L was an exculpatory witness, in my opinion. She might not have been pertinent to the prosecution brief. As I've explained when I referred to the director's guidelines, excuse the Crown from calling her to give evidence. The accused is not on the legal authorities required to call her and lose his last right of address to the jury. To try to force that is inherently unfair. The Crown were obliged to call her. They did not. And in my opinion, that's a serious matter requiring review by the Court of Appeal. And of course, Lisa L's evidence, or at least her claims, have been supported by what Claudio said and Marzia Q said. So, in effect, they supported each other. Well, there you are again. The Crown refused to call Max Seeker's brother, Claudio, or Marcia Q, who was with Claudio on Easter Sunday night. Without saying so, one can assume they, the prosecutor decided they were not credible. Even if you were to ignore the evidence from Lisa L, there is clear evidence of credibility, in my view, particularly relating to Marcia Q. She was able to tell police that night they had watched a movie called The Horse Whisperer. Now, that was confirmed with the channel that had that movie on, and it was established that the movie didn't finish until just after midnight on Easter Sunday night. Marcia Q says she observes the Seeker vehicles parked outside the Seeker house when she leaves with Claudio to go home at 12.30. How is that not credible in in the light of what Marcia Q was able to tell police? They provided statements. They were also subjected to examinations before the Crime and Misconduct Commission at some length. I've read that material and I think you might have too, Graham. I have, yes. Well, you know, in my opinion, I couldn't see anything in that examination which provided a reasonable basis for saying they were not credible witnesses. In fact, at the conclusion of Marcy Accused's evidence, she clearly says to the questioner, these are horrendous crimes. I would never cover up for anybody that I thought might have committed those crimes. Yes, I was impressed by her evidence there as well. Can I just add that perhaps her evidence did not support the Crown case? <laughs> you mean that it supported what Max Seeker had told them? And I was always confused about the evidence that did get in that Claudio only ever saw Max's silhouette on the bed, not him personally. That's interesting. Hopefully my explanation will provide some enlightenment for you and the listeners. 
because that's not what Claudio said. What Claudio said in two of his statements is clearly set out in those states. The evidence relating to Claudio seeing Max's silhouette is what Detective Zitney told the court, Claudio said. Quite rightly, the trial judge told the jury what Detective Zitney said was not admissible evidence, that Claudio did see a silhouette or indeed anything else. Claudio needed to be called to provide admissible evidence of what he had seen. The Crown could have and should have called him. There is no doubt in my mind that had he been called, the judge would have permitted the prosecutor to cross-examine him if that's what he wanted to do. Claudio freely gave three statements to police following the murders. In two of those statements, he refers to seeing his brother in bed and what he said in each of those two statements was... These are his words, but not his voice. I then drove Marzia home to her house in my car. When we were leaving, I didn't notice any of the family's car in the street. I would have to come back home within 20 minutes. After having a shower, I went to bed. Before I went to bed, I went into Max's room to tell him that his new mobile phone would be ready to be collected from the store. He looked like he was asleep, so I didn't disturb him. His television was on, but he looked like he was asleep. His second statement. When I got home from dropping Marzia home that night, I went to talk to Massimo. Normally, I would walk one or two tiled widths into his room and then lean over to see if his eyes were open or not. I cannot recall specifically that night. Massimo sleeps sprawled across the bed and I could easily see him on that night. The light from the TV fell across his body. I recall I actually saw his person and not just a pile of sheets. I recall that his bedroom door was open. Graham, the first of those statements was given on the 12th of May 2003. The second was given on the 31st of March 2004. They are consistent and clearly say that Claudio maintains he saw his brother asleep in his bed. Not a silhouette, as stated by Zitney. The jury did not get to hear this evidence from Claudio because the prosecutor refused to call him. As a side, Max Seeker instructs me that he told his defence barrister that he wanted Claudio and Marcia called to give their evidence. He was told by the defence barrister that, no, he would lose his last right of address. That was important and it was his decision, not Max's decision. Now, people can make what they will of that, but that explains why Maxika says his brother and Marcia Q were not called. Going on, the evidence of Lisa L also supported Claudio's credibility in that it supported Maxika's statement that he'd been home all night, and therefore the truth of Claudio's statements that he'd seen Max in bed after he returned from dropping Marcia home would have been important for the jury to hear. Graham, if anything I have said conflicts with what the police and prosecution claim to be the facts, surely they can make those claims by having someone contact you and provide what they might say are conflicting details. I certainly do not claim to be infallible, my friend. I'm open to being corrected if something I've said can be proved to be wrong. However, in my opinion, all of these witnesses should have been called by the prosecutor. He chose, however, not to do that. He preferred to keep the evidence of Lisa L, Marcia Q and Claudio Seeker from the jury and the court, and he was then able to maintain that Max Seeker deliberately lied when he said he was at home all Easter Sunday night. 
Now, he did so forcefully using the alleged Tuesday lie about the time Max Seeger arrived at the Singh house to convince the jury that Max Seeger was lying about being home on Sunday night. He said that his lying about the time he was in that house on Tuesday before calling Triple O was evidence he was there on Sunday night, otherwise why would he lie? As explained in the previous episode, the jury did not have the benefit of evidence from witnesses that could give relevant exculpatory evidence supporting what Max Seeker and his sister had told police about the Tuesday, and similarly from witnesses who could give exculpatory evidence that supported Max Seeker's claim he was home on the Sunday night. The Attorney General simply says, in refusing the petitions, no grounds for referral here, no explanation, no reasons given. Oh, and by the way, there's no judicial review of that. One might think that had the jury heard the evidence of Lisa L, Marcia Q and Claudio Seeker, they would not have been satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker was at 20 Grass Creek Close on Easter Sunday night when it's alleged that the Singh children were killed. Jeff, I recall, as you would, there was a sighting of a car parked in Pepper Street at about 11pm on the Sunday night. I did not find that evidence convincing. The witnesses could not agree on the night, they could not agree on the time or the make of the car. And also, the car was sighted by the same witnesses around 6pm, at which time Max Seeker was alibied. The judge warned the jury that the police procedure of showing some witnesses who said they saw a car parked in Pepper Street on Easter Sunday night was flawed and the evidence was of dubious value. Well, I certainly agree with that statement. Had the jury heard from Lisa L, Miss Q and Claudio Seeker, the evidence, in my opinion, would have been of absolutely no value. Despite the dubious quality of the evidence relating to the car sighting in Pepper Street, the prosecutor still told the jury, These are his words, but not his voice. If in the light of all the evidence, if you accept the evidence of two witnesses that there was a vehicle in Pepper Street, and if you accept that there was the accused vehicle, then his denial of having gone there at that time, and more particularly, his assertions to police he was at home all the relevant times, it will be submitted, indicates his guilt. If you don't believe it was Max Seeker's car, then the evidence relating to the car in Pepper Street was an unnecessary distraction. Distraction. My favourite word of this whole podcast. I do not know whether I love it or hate it. Classic, isn't it? If you don't believe what I'm telling you, just discard it because it's a distraction. It might not be a distraction. It might have been the car of the actual killer. The jury might well have thought that that was the case and that it was not Max Seeker's car. The prosecutor knows that there is evidence that contradicts that statement, but declines to call those witnesses. He just simply tells the jury, if you don't accept it's Max Seeker's car, then it's a distraction. Now, the other interesting thing is, and the judge referred to this in his summing up, the prosecutor in his address to the jury also said to the jury that they'd heard from a range of witnesses whose evidence was irrelevant. Well, one shakes one's head and questions why would the Crown call a range of witnesses 
whose evidence had no relevance to whether or not Max Seeker was guilty or innocent. What we do know is they refused to call witnesses that might have tended to prove that Max Seeker was innocent. So why would they call a host of witnesses who had no relevant evidence to give? An interesting comment, Jeff. I'll have to study that. It's an interesting question. I mean, I think I know the answer. I've been in a couple of cases like this before where the case went for days and days and one was left scratching their head as to why there were so many witnesses. One might speculate, and there's that word speculate, if you call a whole host of witnesses and the trial lasts for 70 days, it might give the jury the impression that the case is so strong and the evidence is so voluminous that only Max Seeker could have committed these murders. It's confusing for the jury, and I know I find it confusing, and reading through the transcript, evidence that clearly was absolutely irrelevant to the issue at hand. And that issue at hand was simply, if you can't prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Max Seeker went to the Singh House and killed those children on Easter Sunday night, then you must find him not guilty. So, in my view... That conduct, again, is unjust and unfair. It's designed for the purposes of confusing the jury. The director's guidelines, to which I referred previously, require a prosecutor to call all relevant witnesses who can give evidence as to the guilt or innocence of the accused. It certainly doesn't say, oh, and by the way, you can call a whole host of witnesses that are relevant and then just dismiss them when you speak to the jury. I'm sure listeners can make up their own mind about that. I seriously doubt that if I'd been involved in the trial, that the trial would have lasted 70 days. And I'll leave the comment at that. That's interesting, Jeff. I'm going to give that angle some consideration. In wrapping up, and maybe it's needless for me to say this, I think it's incumbent on the Attorney General to immediately refer this matter to the Court of Appeal for review and to cease relying on the Holzinger decision to refuse referral without reasons or without recourse to judicial review when the petition documents raise grounds supported in each case by documentation outlining serious concerns as to the conduct of Max Seeker's trial and Max Seeker's guilt. I haven't mentioned before, in addition to the actual petition documents that run to hundreds of pages, there were volumes of exhibits that were included with those documents where I had extracted all of the relevant transcript and all of the relevant documents to which I referred for the Crown to be able to review. In any event, they don't have to give reasons and they did not. And here we are. In closing, let me say to your listeners, my focus in the work that I was doing was not on determining who killed the Singh children. You know, obviously, that's a question you've addressed, and you've addressed it very well, far more aligned with your role than it is with mine. My task was to focus on whether or not Max Seeker received a fair trial, whether or not there'd been a substantial miscarriage of justice, and evidence that was not called at trial, or new evidence that justified referral to the Court of Appeal. Did I form some views about who might have killed the Singh children apart from Max Seeker? Yes, I did, and I will discuss those in a future episode. I look forward to hearing your views on that matter. I only raise this now to aid listeners in the understanding 
the importance to the police and prosecution of keeping from the court and the jury evidence that supported Max Seeker's assertions that he was at home on Sunday night and arrived at Grass Tree Close at 2.20 on Tuesday. I hope I've adequately explained that from the point of view of my focus as a part to what you've been focusing on earlier in the podcast. Yes, I think you have, Jeff, clearly and in layman's terms. Much appreciated. You see, had the jury known, just to remind the listeners, of the reason there was no CCTV footage, if they'd known that Zitney failed to disclose to the court and the defence, job long 741, if they'd heard Lady of Peace statement to the police, if they'd known that the blurred photograph showed a date of the 28th and not the 29th, and that the crime scene logs did not support the SOCO officer taking a photograph of the phone outside the crime scene at 12.19 on the 29th, if they heard what Lisa L told police on the door knock, if they'd been advised of the refusal of police to take a statement from her because it was not pertinent to the prosecution brief, and if they'd heard the evidence available from Claudio Seeker and Marcia Cute, I would have thought the prosecution might have had grave difficulties proving beyond a reasonable doubt that, one, Max Seeker was at Grass Street Close when the Singh children were said to have been killed, or two, that he lied about arriving at Grass Street Close at 2.20pm on Tuesday. And Graham, if that was the case, that was what the jury needed to decide. They needed to hear all of the relevant evidence relating to that, and they did not. Doesn't call for a review. I don't know what does. When it's put like that, Jeff, it's very compelling. There's a lot there to consider, and as we both know, that's not all the evidence in dispute in this matter. I wonder if any of the jurors on Max Seeker's trial have listened to this podcast. If they have, they may be thinking they were not given all the facts on which to reach a proper verdict. As many of you may be aware, in the Leanne Holland murder, the jury foreman called into radio announcer Greg Carey and claimed the jury had been hoodwinked. What do you have for us next week, Jeff? I thought I'd deal in a little more depth with the Holzinger decision and what are said to be speculations and distractions. Ah, distractions. Possibly not my favourite word, but definitely the prosecutor's favourite word. And of particular interest to your listeners, I hope, might be what I will say in expanding on the importance of that 34-second phone call made by Max Seeker to Neil Moore on Easter Sunday night. In my view, the importance of that phone call has largely been overlooked amongst the distractions and the speculation. I think it was a crucial piece of evidence. Stay tuned. Thank you, Jeff. Once again, very informative. Looking forward to what you have to tell us next week about distractions. All right, Graham. Stay well. Thank you. Please join us next week where we discuss further anomalies with the evidence from a legal viewpoint. If you follow the podcast, you will be advised when the further episode drops. Please rate and review the podcast. It does help spread the story and raise our awareness. If you like the podcast, please tell your family and friends. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the Facebook page, Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy, or via my email address, looseends2003 at outlook.com. 
This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music, Before I Go, by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.